Wolf, wolf, hunt them far and yonder. The forest is brimming with wolves. It's my job to hunt them down, not yours. But we could hunt them together. Wolves, bears, dragons even. <laughs> <laughs> Wolfwalkers. Wolfwalkers? The ones that can talk to wolves with some wild magic. They can come out now. We can smell ya, you stick. You're a wolfwalker. You're a wolf when you sleep. A girl when you're awake. <laughs> Something's happened to me. Yeah, I can see that. Flipping great. You're a wolf now. Be a wolf. The wolves are getting smaller every day. These wolves, they're just beasts. Tonight we put an end to this. I promise your mother I'd keep you safe. We're so excited today to be joined by the directors of Wolfwalkers, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. Tom and Ross have been childhood friends since growing up in Kilkenny, Ireland, and have both created illustrious careers in art direction and filmmaking. After co-founding his animation studio, Cartoon Saloon, Tom has directed, written, produced, and designed multiple film and television projects, including Puff and Rock, The Prophet, and The Breadwinner. He has also drawn multiple graphic novels and is a proud vegan. <laughs> Ross loves to paint and his textured semi-abstract works have been exhibited in multiple international galleries and collections. As a conceptual artist and art director, he has worked on multiple shorts and films, including Paranorman, and has collaborated with Tom on The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. Welcome, Tom and Ross. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Yeah. We are so excited to have you here today. And I know speaking for both of us, we loved Wolfwalker so much Thought it was just such a beautiful and empathetic film. It was such a delight to be able to watch it in 2020. So to start out, I think we would love to know, and our listeners would too, how did you both get interested in film and specifically in animation? Well, Tom himself, I think when we were when we were in secondary school together, we were both teenagers and we were really into arts and we were really into comics and illustration. And we went up to visit Sullivan Blute Studios when we were teenagers because a, a friend of ours had an aunt who worked there and um, which then became Don Blute Studios afterwards. But uh, it was just mind blowing. You know, it seemed so exciting and it seems I don't know, it captivated both of us, I think. And so we were both into comics and animation. And I, I think I could have gone either way, really, upon leaving secondary school, which is your high school. But um, there was no there was no course in comic books. There was only animation. So I think I think that's more or less how I ended up in animation. And then, of course, I 
I specialized in background painting because I still wanted to paint. I still wanted to do like, you know, two dimensional single images because I, I kind of got sick of doing animation and doing reams and reams of paper in college. Um, so then when I left and, and joined Cartoon Saloon, I, I ended up focusing on backgrounds and art direction. And then slowly you kind of get interested in making little shorts or and then bit longer films and, and then a feature film at the end. So it was very slow progression, but I'd say it was different for Tom. Not completely. We were a little bit um, on the same track. Um, I think for me, Young Irish Filmmakers was very formative, being part of Young Irish Filmmakers, also with Ross here in Kilkenny. And that kind of gave us a little taste of the collaboration part of it, which I think I, I definitely was like Ross when I started out. I thought comics uh, were going to be an easier way to tell my own stories or to have a, a bigger voice because I felt animation was so collaborative and so expensive that you needed a lot of money and a big team to do anything. But I think three young Irish filmmakers, I mean, by going to animation school in, in Dublin, we kind of kind of got the bug again, you know. I love that you all met when you were younger. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's good in a way, but in another way, it feels like our life hasn't moved on. <laughs> yes, that's the other side of it. And we're also still in our hometown and everything. So like sometimes yeah. we were looking forward to, we were going to get a bus and travel around in a little camper van and do interviews uh -huh. and go to festivals and stuff after we finished the movie, but then COVID happened. Oh, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been so much fun. Yeah. Maybe on the next one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah in another eight years time <laughs> <laughs> so one thing i really loved about this movie was that we grew up in a, an era where we watched a lot of hand-drawn films specifically those old disney films i really loved those and that was something that your film made me feel really nostalgic for so i'm curious what do you love most about hand-drawn animation as a way to tell stories and how do you think this type of animation might allow you to convey elements like tone or setting in a way that other styles of animation might not? Yeah, I think hand-drawn animation kind of um, has a certain timelessness. Like when you speak about those old Disney ones, they definitely, at least visually, don't date. I mean, sometimes the subject matter gets older, but you can look at the visuals of a Bambi and it looks mm -hmm. just as fresh, like CG animation, I mean, it's amazing, but it's always improving. And I guess if the CG animation is aiming for that kind of photorealism, that seems to be a never ending, you know, uh, progression. That stuff that blew our socks off like 10 years ago looks old already. Whereas the old hand-drawn stuff has a sense of craft that it's more like picture book illustrations or something, more timeless. So there are certain stories that kind of suit hand-drawn animation, I think. And I think hand-drawn animation especially like when we get into using everything that hand-drawn animation can do, can be more expressive and you can have the language of comic books and illustration in it in a very natural way. Definitely helps with the tone. Like Ross and I were talking the other day about how tonally this movie could be quite dark. And if you imagined it in like a photorealistic CG style or action, the themes might have seemed a lot heavier, seeing somebody in a mm -hmm. stocks or, you know, kids being threatened and stuff. But when it's in hand-drawn animation, there's a certain tonal shift that feels a bit more um, accessible to younger audiences without traumatizing them, hopefully. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the old classic Disney's because 101 Dalmatians was a massive mm -hmm. influence on us. You know, um, visually, we, we just loved the fact of like these, these kind of degraded Xerox lines and then the colors uh, and the backgrounds especially were offset. You know, it just seemed like a very kind of free and loose um, style, uh, which was quite brave for the time that it was released. So 
what they what they achieved by by xeroxing um you know the uh, on top of cells we kind of had to fake by doing it digitally in that um but it was the same same aesthetic really uh they, they looked like they had sketchy lines it looked very much hand drawn and that was that's what we were going for and i think like all through cartoon saloon um projects that I've worked on anyway, and I think that Tom has worked on, we've tried to have this approach that anything that can be drawn or can be painted or or even can be made or printed can be animated, you know, that we would try and have um, have it looking as traditional as possible. So a lot of the time, the the notes that we would have given compositor, the compositing groups would have been that it looked too digital, that it was veering more towards a digital looking image. So to bring it back to something that looked a little bit more handmade. That's great. One thing I noticed too, speaking of 101 Dalmatians, was how the town felt so like puritanical and the forest was kind of more free and wild with watercolors. But in addition to those Disney movies, I grew up reading a lot of Roald Dahl books and it reminded me of Quentin Blake, those like kind of creepy, quirky illustrations with sharp lines to them that kind of made it feel a little lighter than the dark themes might suggest. Definitely somebody we spoke about early on. The, yeah, exactly. And the, the tonal, the feeling, there was one uh, um, storyboard artist we worked with earlier on, and I'm not going to try and pronounce her name, but you did a better job the other day, Ross. She's a Russian lady, and she did some arena. Anyway, Korczynski? Korczynski, I think. Yeah, I just afraid to butcher it every time I try, disrespectfully. But she's an amazing young artist, and she had that tone, that sense, like she would draw some of the images that were in the script that we might be a bit afraid would be too heavy but they felt like quentin blake illustrations in a rolled out books and with certain techniques in the movie continuing on your types of animation and using hand-drawn it's so interesting to see like the wolf walker vision say and then comparing the town the very stark square lines with the flowy circular forest and then even at key moments i love that you change the aspect ratio when uh, Robin and Maeve are going through these pivotal moments in their childhood. Can you speak about how, I guess, you transition between these elements? And it's very atypical for animation to use so many different ways to tell a story. And I really appreciate it as a viewer. And I feel like kids and adults can feel differently, but also unite under what they're seeing, what they're watching. So can you talk about, I guess, who developed these techniques and how you implemented them? Well, I think it's going back to to our inspiration from graphic novels and comics in a huge way for the aspect ratios and triptychs and things like that. Because, you know, um, when uh, when you're laying out panels on a on a page for a comic, you you can basically make any aspect ratio you want. You can make them tall, the full width of the page, or you can segment it and have it like uh, you know each little tiny panel telling a story. And you know, there's a whole rhythm and meter to it. So. We've always had that that idea that like okay if it can be done in comics it can be done in animation too like you're you're limited to the width of the screen but within that you can do anything you want so you know when when Robin or Maeve feel boxed in you know the, the frame comes in like and it comes we we decided to do it um, gradually too so that it might not be like a, you know a really severe shift but then say when Lord Protector is fighting Bill as a wolf at the end we have like a really you know super widescreen ones mm-hmm. for this kind of epic battle so it's really just and we're not the first ones to do this by any means you know like if you go back to sin city or or anything like that wes anderson does it a lot you know playing around with aspect ratios and many many other filmmakers have done that but i think maybe what we've done is just maybe incorporated it 
into the the whole visual aesthetic so that the borders have like rough edges and they look like they're you know kind of hand inked or hand painted um but the visual language of the whole film you know this this dark kind of town style against the forest that's all flowing and everything tom himself had been thinking about that from the very very original concept of the story um like we knew that there had to be two contrasting styles for the two environments and and one was like a cage for robin and one had to be very free and very loose for the world of the wolf walkers and wild animals and very instinctive and i remember earlier on we had a page up on on this on the wall in our little room where we were developing the story and we had a line drawn down in the middle of it and um on one side was like wild free instinct and on the other side was cage like oppression and like trapped and so we knew that everything had to fit like had to sit on one side of that line like sit on either side of that fence so even when we're designing like you know effects or like props or like the stocks or anything like that or, or trees or flowers they had to kind of be pushed into into one of these two contrasting styles um, so the whole way through, we, we had that in mind. And then when people came on, like concept artists and scene illustrators and uh, storyboarders and everything, they knew that there had to be like these two contrasting styles and it had to be in one or the other. So even compositions like the layout uh, artists knew that in the town they had to like think about boxes and they had to think about like verticals and horizontals and geometric patterns. And then in the forest, there had to be these swooping lines in composition. So the whole, in every department, they had to kind of have that switched on. Tom, do you want to add anything to that? Or? Gosh, you said it all, man. No, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's perfect. <laughs> the only thing I'd say is that like, it was also stuff that, you know, we talked about way back in Secret of Kells and I tried it out a little bit. There was like triptych shots and stuff in Secret of Kells. And so I think when Ross and myself decided we were going to co-direct this one, we were just saying, let's try all, throw everything at it, you know? And I think another thing is that we we do get like we do kind of get influenced by everything, you know, and, and the people that work on the film, they bring in influences from not just film or not just animation, but graphic novels and printing and, you know, Clara, like, I have Clara's. everything. You know, one of the artists that worked with us makes prints like actual block prints like oh, that. Wow. And she, yeah. And she sent us that. But she's um, she Clara was sick. Sees this get well soon. Clara's got COVID. Oh, she's sick. Oh no way! Mm. Um, but she she was uh, like a huge part of of implementing that kind of like block print style for the town because she's a printmaker herself. So we were li really lucky to have artists who work in all kinds of different art forms, you know, give input into the style of the film. I think that was a big thing for us as well because we've been working together for so long. We're a bit sick of our own stuff, and it was nice to have good artists that were kind of making us more, you know, energized and engaged and. They make us look good, make us look more original. Do you bring in new animators, designers, art directors into the studio, or do you have like a pretty established group of animators that you work with already through Cartoon Saloon? It's mixed, to be honest with you, uh, Nick. Like in the studio at the start, it was just a bunch of us that had been to college together. And then over the years, I mean, it's 20 years now, 21 years now, there's been actually people have come in who've been influenced by seeing our work <laughs> and they've kind of brought a little bit of their own style and also their influence from our previous stuff. So there's a nice mixture. I mean, our co-art director, um, Maria Preha, was just a, gra a recent graduate, incredibly talented. And on the other hand, we had some old hands on the movie that had worked on Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, Breadwinner, everything. And they had all that experience under their belt too. So it was a nice mix. 
So speaking of the development of the film, how long does it take? Because I feel like you say hand-drawn and I think it might take years and years to make. So what is the process like from inception to animation to post? It's very long. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, what's the word? Iterative or, you know, like bit by bit kind of process. So it starts very um, organically and kind of in a few directions at once where you have the idea, you're working on a script, you're doing visual concepts, you're maybe doing a few storyboards. And then you get to the point where you feel like you have a script that you're, you're happy with. And then it goes into what we call the animatic stage. And that's a lot of the filmmaking happens at that stage, even though it's really rough. It's only usually black and white sketches. The story team and the writer, and we do like rough voices and we work with an editor and we sculpt the story over and over again and we make it and remake it with drawings first. And at the same time, you're usually doing the designs and concepts and really nailing down the art direction. And then after that, it's like a, I suppose it was about two years of full-time, all day, every day, weekends, nights, doing production, it. Production, yeah. Production, like production. We, like we finished last June um, and we started seven years before that. So like uh, the first four years was really just Tom, myself and a couple of concept artists and Will, the, the screenwriter. Um, and while we were doing that, uh, while we were like, you know, working on different drafts of the scripts, like Tom himself also directed a, a feature or a part of the feature of The Prophet, which the main feature was directed by Roger Allers, but we directed a segment. And then uh, Tom was also finishing up Song of the Sea when we first started, you know, mm -hmm. and and then I was doing freelance work and, um, uh, you know, we, we had other projects on the go because you really, like while, while Will would be working on a draft, we'd give notes and he'd be off for a month or two. So really we, we can't just sit around just twiddling our thumbs for, you know, two More months. More so <laughs> so we would we would get involved in other projects and, and things like that um so it really like as it builds up steam then as it gets a bit more concrete as tom was saying then you have to devote more and more time to it until it eventually becomes a very much a full-time job yeah i'd say there's about three years of full-time you know about 200 people working on it all day every day trying to just create all the drawings all the backgrounds all the animation yeah. and then there's this kind of wind down period where you're getting it all colored up and all put together and doing the sound and doing the music and all like that so it's a it's a long old haul all right yeah there was there was another kind of important part of of the pre-production development which was we made a conceptual trailer to try and raise um, money for, for you know try and raise funds to make the film so that was i think what the conceptual trailer was about a minute minute and a half or two minutes or something mm -hmm. so with that we're trying out all kinds of different techniques and styles and things that we would have in our mind to see if it's feasible and see if it's doable and we'd have a small little team of maybe about eight or nine people working on that um, so that's the conceptual uh, trailer that's up on YouTube if anyone wants to see it. And we even tried out like little bits of wolf vision and that. So really we used that to go to Cartoon Movie to try and raise money. If no one wanted to give us money, then at least we'd have a trailer made. <laughs> we could just go off and make something else. So luckily we got money. <laughs> Cartoon Movie, just to clarify, Cartoon Movie, maybe people in America don't realize, but in Europe, most animation is made as a co-production between smaller studios. And so Cartoon Movie is a co-production forum where you go and present your project and see, does anybody want to come on as co-producers? So we had um, French and Luxembourg and Chinese co-producers on this as well as Apple. 
I think it's a really alien concept cartoon movie for the American production method because usually the studios are so yeah. top secret about all of their yeah. developments, ideas. Whereas in cartoon movie, you have someone come along and go, Bleh, here's my idea. <laughs> Anyone want to give me money? And someone could easily go, oh, that's a good idea. I think I'll make it myself. But um, yeah, maybe we're just too trusting or something. Oh, it's the only way to get them done, I think. I think there's not much other option, you know. I love that like spirit of collaboration. And I think you can definitely tell in your film, like how detailed it was and how um, there are so many themes in it. And I love that when you dig into it, it feels like this historical yet totally modern like, fable or fairy tale. And it has some pretty dark themes, which I was really interested in watching this animated film as an adult. But I'm wondering how did you approach maybe incorporating these films into a movie that you knew would be watched by both adults and kids and then were there any darker themes that you maybe left on the cutting room floor and couldn't explore fully yeah we were wandering around in the earth like the the kind of organic phase that we talked about earlier that was where we explored every direction and yeah there was time spent talking about the, there was a huge history in, in Kilkenny here where we grew up. There's witchcraft and, you know, ideas of witches being burnt at the stake. And we talked, oh, that would be the obvious threat that would be applied to Robin, you know, but it was such a dark concept. And we didn't, we didn't even go so far as drawing anything for that. But those are the types of things that we were dealing with because it was such an oppressive time period. And actually modern audiences, I think, would be pretty traumatized by what was commonplace back then. You know, we read about some horrible like punishments that the Puritans would have had for women who stepped out of line and all. So we knew like this had this wasn't something that we wanted to go and we weren't making, you know, the witch or the piano or something. It was, a, you know, a little bit more um, for uh, families. And so what we just had to keep coming back to was the girls, their friendship. Tonally, we used um kind of touchstone movies like we talked about Princess Mononoke from Ghibli but we also talked about like Son of Rambo by Garth Jennings and those uh, E.T. and those kind of movies that were movies for kids but explored other themes so that you could revisit them again and again and so you could have a kind of strata of of levels of of reading you know hopefully so that's what we were hoping for anyway. Yeah I mean there was there was no getting around the fact that like reading it uh, in script format you could imagine it being done very, very dark and like very traumatizing for kids or, you know, you could, um, I suppose, with the help of the visuals and the voice, uh, the voices and everything, lighten the tone. Um, but there was there was one part, though, you know, where where Mal is on the stage and she's like chained up and Lord Protector is like, you know, saying we're going to kill, you know, this this girl's mother um, in front of a big baying crowd. And I always I always thought, God, we have to do that so carefully or else that could be really really dark like no matter how much we have playful moments with robin and mave out in the forest and all that but if that's if that gets really really severe and if it's done too i don't know um too menacing it could have been something that threw the whole film off just that one little sequence and it is it is still that that moment when when mave reaches through the cage and and says to her mother like mommy what have they done to you that part always pulls at my heartstrings because it's like you know, we, we kind of see it. We, we played it a little bit more like comic with the soldier's helmet getting shoved down on his head and, you know, like a few things that, that people are laughing at. But really, there's no getting around the fact that for Maeve, that is an absolute horror show. So, yeah, there's there's always tonal challenges with those kind of things. 
but I think it's good to scare kids and to, to you know, like a little bit, <laughs> you know, like I always enjoyed um, books as a kid, like Roald Dahl, like you were saying, mm-hmm. Sophia, you know, um, that would have these kind of like edgy, scary things. And it's not traumatizing. So he knows how far to push it. But like in The Witches and stuff like that, they are scary. And you kind of go, you kind of get a thrill out of it as reading it as a kid, you know. A lot of stuff is too sugar-coated these days, maybe. Absolutely. I mean, going along with that, when the wolf is shot and then also the bird, I was shocked at home. I might have screamed. So I can only imagine for a kid how scary that would be. But I think your previous films teeter along that line between dark and playful and heartwarming so well. I think that's why they're just so critically loved and also by audiences too. Um, They're interesting in so many different ways. Yeah, I think it was important to show that like characters could get harmed and possibly killed like early on, you know, like Sean Oga's attacked by the wolves and gets cuts and then Merlin is shot. So um, otherwise it would just be safe. It would be so safe. There'd be no threats. There'd be no stakes really at play. So I think Will, Tom, myself knew even from early on that we had to go there. We had to like show that people could get, you know, consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Are there specific things that you want children and adults to take away from the film? I think both Ross and myself were like careful not to be to not try to be too preachy, but that we'd hope that the themes that we were interested in exploring would come across and that people would take them on board to their own extent. I mean, definitely, I mean, you described me as a proud vegan earlier on, and I definitely think for me a lot of the early in interest in the telling the story was to speak about species and destruction, species extinction that's still going on. We're living through massive species destruction. And to talk about the fact that, you know, when you learn, when you lose um, any species, you lose a lot more than just the animal. You lose something of our humanity and our connection to that animal. And um, I think that was just like an environmental sort of theme as well that we were thinking about that, like, you know, there's a lot, lot to process in our relationship to nature for all of us living through what we're going through at the moment, and especially for kids. So. We're kind of hoping that this would just be part of that consciousness raising about our connection to nature that we're not you know we're not the, the lord protectors worldview that that kind of um colonizing worldview where man is at the top and nature is what we have dominion over has to be moved past and we have to move to a place where i believe and i hope that the movie speaks to that we have to move to a place where we're in, in part of nature not above it you know Mm. And at that time as well, I think Tom and myself were, were very interested in the notion of speciesism too, about how most people will view their pet dog as like this beautiful creature that should never be harmed, but yet their cousin, the wolf, can be hunted to extinction, you know? So like even the, the idea uh, that some people have very little empathy towards other humans, never mind non-humans, like how to foster that empathy in people and even if they do have empathy towards towards other people how can they have more empathy towards one species and not another species even you know like if they're so alike so uh, at the very start we were thinking like uh, a person who's hunting wolves what would it take for them to have um, enough empathy towards their prey to stop hunting them you know and and so we were thinking well if if their child turned into a wolf then maybe that might be enough and so i think that was one of the foundations of that story but um, as Tom was saying, we didn't want it to be at the forefront of of our story, so that it would appear preachy. Um, the, you know, it's, it's always a the, kind of a backdrop. I think the heart of a lot of what we talked about as well that we were just joking and talking about earlier is that this polarization where each other are so other, 
Peter Singer talks about that a lot when he talks about speciesism, that the ability to see anybody as less than human comes from our ability to see ourselves as more than other animals in nature, you know? And so that was sort of what we hope to show in Robin and Maeve, that two kids, even if they're from very different sort of worldviews and ideologies, are able to be friends anyway. And it seems almost naive and Pollyanna-ish to say that now, but I think it's all the hope we have, isn't it, that people from different points of view can see across the difference. And, and like, uh, you know, in, in Lord Protector's time, and even like, uh, you know, right up until the start of the last century, there was still notions that other humans were less than human you know oh, yeah. like aborigines and people in tasmania were wiped were wiped out because they were treated like like literally like yeah. wild animals so so there's a whole <laughs> notion there of like that certain sections of society or certain sections of the population of, of people on the planet thought that they were on top and that you know even other people were below them and the whole the whole idea that you could come into a place and go yeah we're going to completely wipe out this this species or this type of people or this type of animal is just so I don't know. It, it it should have it should have stopped a long long time ago. You know? I know none of these themes are really new for you guys. Um, you've worked on these on previous films on the Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, and this has now been talked about as this Irish folklore trilogy. So, did you set out to make this as a three part series? Yeah, I, it, it, we when we were making Secret of Kells, we were just hoping to get that made. You know. But then once that was made, um, there was kind of a moment where we weren't sure if we were going to continue because that's why we'd set up the studio was to make that movie and it was maybe time to move on and do other things. But when we got the Oscar nomination and a certain amount of success for Secret of Kells, I already had the idea for Song of the Sea. So it felt natural to go ahead and continue developing Song of the Sea and make that. And then there was just this kind of OCD part to me that felt like two wasn't a nice number, but three was a nice number. <laughs> So Everything said good Ross, comes in threes, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I just said to Ross, it would be nice to do a third one. There was also a sense of frustration. I felt that we were learning so much by making Secret of Cows and Song of the Sea that we wanted to put a lot of what we'd learned and a lot of ideas that we'd had along the way into one final big kind of last hurrah. So it, it definitely became, uh, you know, halfway through Song of the Sea, I think, Ross and myself were pretty sure we wanted to make this and pack everything into it that we hadn't had a chance to do in the previous ones. And then right off into the sunset. Now we're finished. Now it's over. <laughs> now you're done forever. <laughs> now we're done. So you kind of touched on this a little bit about political themes today and how people might view other people as less than and how they might think they're more important. I'm curious about how you looked at modern history and political events, but also at the past with Celtic mythology and folklore. And if you were interested, like really interested in that growing up, because I definitely viewed the Lord Protector as Cromwell when oh, I was yeah. watching it. Yeah. So I'm curious, I guess, how you kind of started to be interested in that mythology and folklore, and then how you see current political themes coming into your work in Wolfwalkers. Well, Tom, myself, I think have like we have an interest in in mythology, not just Irish mythology. I mean, but I I love listening to uh, audiobooks and Norse mythology and and Greek and Roman and Japanese and Indian. I just started, so um, like there's just I I don't know. There's something really kind of pure about the early myths and legends that they're they're I don't know. There's 
they're they're so imaginative like they're not afraid to just ha introduce a character who has like seven heads or who can fly <laughs> or like a god that can change into any animal he wants you know it's just so imaginative and i think it comes from this early days where there was no rules and there was very little logic for these stories and there were great analogies for like the human condition like really universal and and so many themes from different mythologies around the world are are so similar so they're great starting points and i think a lot of great writers used to you know like shakespeare and and whoever else would have drawn from these early myths as inspiration too because they do deal with really universal kind of basic human themes and um, and in Ireland, I think in primary school, you know, everyone learns the more common myths and legends of, of the country, like uh, Cú and Fiona Cúl and stuff like that as part of the curriculum. And a lot of people, I suppose, just leave it there, but at least it, it fosters an interest. And then Ireland is still a little bit superstitious in that there are still areas of Ireland where they believe in fairies and, you know, it's bad luck to cut down a fairy tree and, um, you know, there are ring forts that you don't touch and, you know, so there's still a kind of superstition there. And I think that must come from this continued belief in like the old myths and legends, or at least, you know, people might scoff at it in public, but they still won't go and cut down that tree, you know. Um, so there's there's a little element of magic there. And I, I love that about Ireland. I love that there's still, you know, uh, still this kind of superstitions that run through the culture. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think it's common enough that if you're interested in something, you'll write a story about it or you'll develop a story about it. Um, so I think that's where that I think comes as from. well, I think we saw a lot of parallels as well. Like you're working on one project and then by doing the research on that, you start stumbling in another, another research and other things that so we all kind of feed into each other. And in terms of the history, I think that this one in particular was history that we grew up with, like the Cromwellian stuff. And uh, I was originally from Northern Ireland. so. Um, definitely have a lot of connections to the ongoing uh, echoes of all the stuff that goes back to those early days of the English colonization of the country. So yeah, I think all that stuff is just kind of in the ether. Um, I think it, I think you want to speak to modern day uh, kind of subtly because nothing is a direct parallel, but history does seem to rhyme even if it doesn't repeat. And so you, it, it, it's not very useful to say, oh, this character is, you know, this historical character is exactly this modern day character. But it is helpful to look at the way things tend to happen and the attitudes. And when Ross was talking about the, I think that there was an animist or a, an overall spirituality that just never got completely crushed in Ireland. And I think it's quite interesting to look at all the succession, whether it was Christianity and English rule and then globalization in the last, you know, uh, 40 years, that somehow Ireland still hung on to this animist kind of way of looking at the world. And maybe that's something that's that we could offer as a culture to this a bit when we need an ability to look at the world in a different way you know but the uh the parallels to to like modern global events was really striking for tom himself because when we were developing this seven years ago we kind of thought that a lot of the themes would you know hopefully be a bit redundant like you know uh, species loss and habitat destruction but as we were making it it just became more and more relevant like um you know, with the rise of these autocratic leaders all around and the rise of the far right. And then um, there was one point when we when the background artists were painting burned like burnt forests and forests and fire. And that was the time that there were forest fires in in the West Coast Spurring. of the US and then in Australia and in Brazil, South America. It was just if anything, it became more relevant. And that was kind of scary because, you know, it was it was very relevant seven years hence. 
you know, when we first came up, but it just gets more and more relevant. Well, on a lighter note, (laughs) (laughs) um, Ross, you worked in the art department on these previous films we mentioned. Uh, What made you come on as co-director or kind of are you rising in the ranks and wanting more overseeing power, I guess? What challenges also or differences did you face? Yeah, it's ultimate power is what I'm after. <laughs> you can have my job. No, no not at all. Um, if anything, I, th- I think directing the feature film made me appreciate the role of art director more because you can actually take a step back from all of the stress and, uh, you know, responsibility and people constantly tugging at you left, right and center. But um, the, like from the start of Cartoon Saloon, like we, I think everyone would have been director at some stage because we were all making like our own little short e-cards and our own little stories for little commercial things. And and then even short films of like five, 10 minutes long or something like that. So I think everyone from the beginning of Cartoon Saloon had like directed something. And it is beautiful to have like an idea and then see it, you know, a few you know, months or years later up on screen and see if it works or not. And each time you make something, you learn something and you can bring it forward into the next project. Um, so having directed a couple of short films, then Tom asked me if I would co-direct the, the segment on The Prophet that I talked about. And that was a much bigger like budget and we could really like go to town on the art direction. And it was like an amazing project to work on because it was a very poetic um, project and huge artistic license. So Tom himself had, um, we tried out a few ideas that we were interested in on that section uh, that we would later bring on into Wolfwalkers. So again, it was like learning from each little project that you could bring on to the other. So it was around that time that, you know, we were developing Wolfwalkers. And I suppose um, once you start writing a story, um, you want to see it through to the end. You know, I think it would have I think if Tom himself didn't get the funding and we had to just walk away from that project and shelve it, it would have been quite, you know, disappointing because you start imagining all these scenes and everything. So I think it's I think it's that passion that just brings it brings it forward. Um, I don't think I ever set out to want to be a director. It just kind of each each project just leads you on. And maybe after this, I'll go back to being an art director. I don't know. <laughs> what was it like directing as a team? I, I really liked it. I really appreciate it. I mean, there was downsides as well. Like, it was hard too, because sometimes, but I think sometimes it wasn't always easy to agree, but not very often that that was a problem. And um, I think, to be honest with you, most of it was uh, positive because from my point of view, having experienced both, I've co-directed before, I've directed before on my own. I think it was positive for this project because we conceived it to be co-directed. It wasn't like it was a project I had and someone said, oh, no, we're going to put another co-director on it with you or, you know, or you're not able to handle it all. It wasn't like that. It was something that we decided to do jointly. We came up with the idea jointly. We developed it jointly. And then we had a kind of spirit of collaboration going because there was already two of us, then three with Will. And then we just kind of spread out that kind of co-direction attitude spread out that we kind of treated like our editor as another mini co-director at one point or supervisors and the different aspects everybody in the team ended up being kind of a filmmaker with us rather than a very strict triangular hierarchy so I don't know what Ross would say but I liked it yeah yeah it was great and it also meant that if one of us (laughs) wanted to take a day off you could trust that the other one wasn't going to mess it all up Um, so there was there was definitely upsides and like I think Tom myself because we had both developed the project right from scratch then there was no kind of power imbalance like yeah. I could imagine if someone came in to co-direct someone else's 
idea from years ago, you would always kind of feel, oh, well, you know, I'm going to give input here, but it's basically their story. And so there'd be a bit of a power imbalance that way. But because Tom and myself both had like, it was both of our idea, we both knew in what way it was going to progress and should progress. So there was never any conflict like that. And also we've known each other since we're 11. So I think all of our basic arguments are gone at this stage. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's more to come in talking about the future of both of you guys. Are you currently working on anything right now? And do you look to incorporate these Irish mythological, paganistic, historical perspectives in future films? For me, maybe in different directions. I'm at the moment, like I'm about to take a bit of time off. If it wasn't for COVID, I'd be in Paris doing life drawing now. But um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to have to delay that, and God knows until when. But in the meantime, I'm helping out with the new projects that the studio are developing. And I'm just sort of looking very intensively at what I might do next. Definitely interested in going, looking at where Irish culture has met other cultures and how that's where, where that's happened. That's interesting for me. Yeah, like as Tom was saying, we had planned to take like a year off at least and, you know, travel around and have a bit of freedom and do whatever we wanted. Um, because like, because especially in the later stages of production, you're you're needed, like you're called on and there's so much responsibility and stress. So we basically just wanted to go off and enjoy ourselves. But then COVID came in and we haven't really been able to do that. So I think that still is on the cards for both of us. Um, but I think like in the short term, I'd, I'd like to get back to painting I'd like to go and explore other art forms. There's a composer friend of mine who has put in funding for this uh, collaborative project where he's going to write a score and um, he wants some kind of animation visuals to go along with that as a live performance. So um, maybe that'll happen sometime this year. Well, Amazing. we're so excited to see whatever both of you come up with in the future. So just to wrap up, this is not really related to Wolf Walkers, but something we like to ask people that we have on our show. What's something that you're wild for right now? It can be anything like a film, oh. TV show, a book that you read. Oh, that's Either of you can go first. Oh, man. Uh, can I say two things? Of course. Sure. Right. Well, the first thing is I read the comic book version of Yovel Noah Harari's Sapiens which is an amazing comic and a really interesting book. So I recommend that. I'm all about that. I'm pushing it on people every chance I get. And uh, my friend Adrian, who made the, who was the art director on um, Song of the Sea, has uh, made a short film called Genius Lucky that I think everyone should seek out. It's really beautiful. For me, there's a book I'm reading called I Am an Island, and it's really beautiful. It's about a, a woman that goes off to live on a Hebridean island on her own and, and um, goes Ross. through all kinds of... It goes through it goes through all kinds of mental anguish while there because her partner leaves her and that but um she starts swimming in the sea every day as a kind of a focus and it's about how nature heals her it's really really beautiful and oh, it's gorgeously beautiful. written and I think um I think that ties in with a little challenge of mine that I got this book for Christmas called Irish Peaks and it's every every Irish mountain and uh, the way to climb them and I'm going to start ticking them off and get through every single Irish peak. <laughs> So that's what I'm great. If as soon as I'm allowed to travel, good. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, Kilkenny is like one of the few counties that has no mountains. So, or woods, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or islands, or forests. 
Well, those nice sound time. great. I will definitely be checking those out. Thank you both for being here so much today. I love speaking with you guys. Yeah, pleasure really speaking with you. And yeah. congratulations on your new president, Irish American <laughs> president. Right. We are so excited. It is a new day <laughs> in the U.S. Yes. Good stuff. Well, thank you again so much, and to all of our listeners, check out Wolf Walkers out on Apple TV Plus now. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks, Thank guys. you. See you. See you. Have a good day. Thanks. Bye. Bye.